0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Thank you. Well Peter begins a new section here in verse 11 and he begins it with that address beloved. Beloved and he moves from look what God has done to how then shall we live. Look what God has done what he's done for us in Christ and now how then shall we live and his focus also shifts from the relationship that the believers had with one another in the church to the relationship of the church with the unbelieving world around them Uh, uh, an unbelieving world that was becoming increasingly hostile to their faith in the first century and what he's saying is here is how to live out your faith in response to God's grace even in the context that you're experiencing even in a hostile context. Now, Peter has already instructed them and us that believers have a primary response to God's grace. He says we are to proclaim His excellencies. Remember that from last week. That is right away the primary response. We are to look for opportunities to tell the world of the goodness of God, the love of God. Look what God has done in my life. In other words, we look to... To share the goodness of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ but now he expands upon our response to God's grace and really if I were to sum up verses 11 and 12 it is a call to live the pilgrim life a call to live the pilgrim life this is Peter's overall strategy and then in verses 11 excuse me 13 and following he will work out the specifics all the way through part of chapter 4. But this is his overarching strategy. How are we to respond to the goodness and grace of God who has made us a king of a priest, his chosen precious people? We are to proclaim his excellencies to the world and then we're also what? To live the pilgrim life. To remember that we're sojourners and aliens just passing through. And what Peter says to us today will really challenge us, beloved, because it is exactly the, the opposite of what our culture constantly says to us. What our co- culture constantly preaches to us is to seek our best life now, here, immediately, to live for Almighty Self. Live for yourself, seek all the pleasure you can out of this life, milk it as much as possible. But what Peter says is the exact opposite. And there's a pseudo-Christian version of what the culture teaches us, which says, in essence, Jesus and the church still has a place in your life, but their place is to help you achieve your self-centered goals. They're here to serve your desires and your passions. But what Peter says is very different. The pilgrim life... It's not like that at all. It's a life, it's a journey. uh, A journey that has before it a much better life to come in eternity. And a journey in this life that is filled with tragedy, pain, pitfalls, and temptation. They are waging war against your soul, he says. And he writes to Christians when he says that. But I do want right up front at the very beginning to make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying the call to a pilgrim life is not a call to a boring, dismal, dark you know, kind of life where you are always distraught and wondering when the other shoe is going to fall. You know, It's not like that at all. There is no better life that I could testify to than the life that God has given me since he came into my life. There's no better life to live than a life in communion with the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A life to live with the Spirit inside of you, who comforts you, who walks alongside us in this life. No better life to live than under the leadership and the authority of a loving Savior and Lord who is the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't imagine how the world does it without Him, you see. So it's not all dismal, it's not all dark, I'm not saying that. But as good as this life could ever get, even as Christians, it's not heaven yet. And there's some things coming into all our lives that will remind us of that, if we've forgotten. This is not yet heaven. And so, Peter, in his strategy uh, for living the pilgrim life, uh, he gives us three major components here. This is not all to say, but here are three major components. To live the pilgrim life, first of all, we there's a, a spiritual identity that we need to embrace. Right away, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Right there. This is a spiritual identity we need to embrace. Your New American Standard Bible says, As aliens and strangers, sojourners and exiles. In other words, I also want you to view yourself like this. Our identity in Christ is much more than this. Absolutely. We are a holy nation. We're God's special possession. We're a kingdom of priests. But he says, in relation to the world, not only are you salt and light, proclaiming his excellencies, but you also are sojourners. And aliens, you're, you're passing through here. This is what we are, always, wherever we are and whenever we are. If we are God's people, we are sojourners. Aliens, strangers to the world on some level. This is not our final home. And this is not just something that became what it is as a result of the Messiah coming. This is not just the experience of Christians. This has been the experience of the people of God all the way throughout the ages. Always the people of God have been strangers and aliens in this present age. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says there, we have no lasting city in here. We seek a city which is to come. A city whose design and builder and foundation is God. Not human beings. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, in that uh, great chapter of the, uh, of the hall of faith... Of the people of God throughout the ages who persevered in his life by faith he says there in, in verse 13 he says these all died in faith speaking of Noah, Abraham all up to that point he said these all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar in other words by faith and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth they acknowledged that for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. He's saying if Abraham was talking about Ur, then he would have just gone back to Ur. <laughs> and he says, but as it is, they desire a better country. Do you desire a better country? They desire a better country, he says, that is... A heavenly one. A heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. The new Jerusalem. And so this has always been the identity of the people of God. And what is it to be a sojourner and, and, and to be in an exile? It's, it's, it's to not quite fit in ever, to recognize that we've been called out of the world on a spiritual level. We are still in the world, yes, but we are called out of it. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, recorded by John in John 17, he says there, it's recorded, I have given them your word, speaking of his disciples, and by extension to you and me, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them in, but safe. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so to be a sojourner, an alien, is to, in some sense, be different than the rest of humanity. Not belonging to the world in its present state. The term sojourner denotes a people living in a foreign country where they where they don't have full rights. And the term exiles is the same word he used right at the beginning of this letter in chapter one, verse one, when he say you're elect exiles. And we said back then that the the closest parallel to that, what does exile mean? The closest parallel would be here in America, would be resident aliens. You live here, you have the right to be here, you're here among us, but you're, you're not a citizen of here, of this place, you see. And that's what he's, to, what he's talking about. Our citizenship, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, says the Apostle Paul. And therefore there are many implications. One of the implications, again, is that we, we don't live as people with the full rights of what it means to, to, to be a fallen person in a fallen world, you see. So you would go out on some vacation and to a foreign country, let's say you go on vacation to Germany, you get there during the election season, you don't have the right to vote in their election. You're not a citizen of Germany, you're just there, you know, what are you doing? And so here we don't have these full rights of fallen people because we don't belong to them as fallen people. Another implication, of course, is that you go somewhere, there's cultural differences. And there's things that people do because of their cultures. We, our family is multicultural. We have many things in, in, in our family that are cultural. Many, many of you have customs and habits and practices that are cultural. And as long as those practices are morally neutral, you're, you're fine to participate in them. But when they're not morally neutral, you have no right to do that. Because why? You answer to a different, a different king who supersedes all human cultures. We answer to the king of kings, and our values and our worldview comes, comes from him. And so there's always going to be a clash. We never quite fully fit in, you see. And another implication is that we recognize that if truly <clears throat> we are sojourners and aliens, we must recognize that this, is not be, this not being the heavenly city, not being the new heavens and the new earth, that also means that everything here is not permanent. Everything here is transient, whatever it is we, we do, whatever we touch, whatever we eat, whatever we build up in our lives. Everything is transient here, be it businesses that we build, be it, be it income that we've gained, be it accomplishments, even our own bodies are transient. They're not permanent here, you see. Everything is in a state of disintegration. In, in this life. And therefore, why would we invest all our best resources, best time, best energies in what? Things that are going to collapse. Well, we need them, but we don't take full use of them. Why? Because again, this is, this is not our final home. There's a sense in which the hymn this is my father's world is true. Yes, even the fallen world belongs to him. But it's not yet the new heavens and the new earth. And so, it means remembering that things are transient and deciding things like that and also trying to learn it's hard i know but to find comfort in the fact that even our bodies are transient <laughs> and the goal of life is not to hold on to your life as long as you could and make it as comfortable and enjoyable as you possibly can <laughs> because it's meant to be transient it's not meant to be permanent now As pilgrims on the journey, then we remember what Paul said when he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, to see the things that are unseen more than to see the things that are seen. And oh, to love the things that are unseen more than to love the things that are seen. Our lives are gifts. Gifts not simply to be kept safe and tucked away for as long as we can enjoy them ourselves, but lives that are meant to be lived out for God's glory on this earth. Using the talents and gifts He's given us to the end. I think Howard Hendricks got it right when he said, most people think that they're in the land of the living heading toward the land of the dead. But the truth is, We're in the land of the dying, heading toward the land of the living, you see. And if you can grab that perspective, which is biblical, and learn to begin to live by it, God will sustain you better through times of trouble. We're not in the land of the living, heading towards the land of the dead. If you're, a Christ, if you're a Christian, by grace, you're in the land of the dying. But you, because you're united with Christ who was raised from the dead, are heading what? Heading towards resurrection. You're heading towards the land of the living. It only gets better for you, you see. In what lies ahead. And that's a spiritual identity. By grace, we learn to grow, to accept and embrace and, and rest in. It'll come to you in a powerful way on your deathbed. When you realize you didn't invest your life in all things that are falling apart that your life was in part in part given to pour yourself out to serve god's people to serve others to love and extend mercy and to proclaim his excellencies and what you maybe thought at the time oh it's costing me it's hurting me or it may may take away from me what's it going to do it's actually an investment in the life you're heading to you see because you're leaving the land of the dying and you're heading to the land of the living and this frees you, you see. As Paul says, we are ambassadors here. We represent a king, a foreign king to this world. In their eyes, we, And we speak on his behalf. And as he says, as ambassadors, Paul says, we make it our aim to please him. And so to live the pilgrim life involves, first of all, a spiritual identity to embrace, beloved. In what ways is your life reflecting the fact? That you're not living for everything that's here, you see. In what ways could you say your life, your decisions, your use of time, resources, and so forth, reflects the fact that you're aware that this is not your final home. And that you are passing through. That's the pilgrim life. Now, the pilgrim life also involves not only a spiritual identity to embrace, but it involves an inner battle to be fought. Look down again, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's the, the, there, there's the identity to embrace, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There it is, there's an inner battle to be fought. Abstain from these things, they're after you, they're waging war against your soul. And if you've been a Christian any at all, you understand that every Christian has an enemy, and it's inside of you. And it's waging war against your soul. Now when Peter uses the term soul, he's talking about the the inner person, right? But he's not limiting to that. The damage will be to your whole life. (laughs) He's emphasizing the fact that it's internal, but the, the consequence will affect your health. It'll affect your whole life, you see. It would ruin you if it could. Now someone could rightly say... I thought you said our identity in Christ was, was the fact that he was the victor over sin and death. We just sang about it for goodness sakes. And now you tell me there's an enemy. Did he not get the job done? You know? Well, you would be right that he he is the victor over sin. Over sin and death. And the battle has been won. The war has been won. The decision has been made, the price has been paid, but in God's design, skirmishes continue, you see. Already we are new creations in Christ Jesus, but not yet are we entirely new in Christ Jesus. Not yet has come the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. And so in this present age, we live in in, in this struggle, and we feel the struggle internally. Every one of us does, and we just need to be honest about it. With ourselves and with those around us, our loved ones. You know, over the years that we've used the illustration of the ending of World War II, at least in the European theater, you, uh, and I'll just mention it again, you know, that there was D-Day, uh, the day that the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy. That massive invasion, and for all practical purposes, Hitler's Germany was defeated. But there were still people dying. And there were skirmishes until V-Day, Victory Day. And when there was a final and full surrender, right now, God has raised Christ and He's at the right hand of the Father until all His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. There's a V-Day that is still lies ahead for us, for us spiritually. You and I live between the spiritual D-Day and spiritual V-Day. And in, the, in, in this time, in this age, There is an inward struggle with the remnants of sin in each and every one of us. Our sins have been forgiven, praise God. (laughs) And what that means is this, that your sins cannot condemn you. Now, now, Not now, not ever. We read it together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict of the last day has been brought to the forward, to the present, so that you would live with joy and a, and, and a clear conscience. There is no condemnation, but sin's presence and sin's influence remain. And so every believer, unfortunately unfortunately he has this lifelong struggle against what peter calls here the passions of the flesh <laughs> the passions of the flesh and they will continually seek to take us captive again yes they will this is this is described in various ways in scripture and one of the one of the clearest passages would be galatians chapter 5 in galatians chapter 5 paul says to them to the, to the Galatian Christians, let me get there, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 he says, I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, now why does he have to say that, these are Christians, well look what he said above to them, he said if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another, Christians bite and devour one another, hmm, yeah sheep bite I tell you, <laughs> yes we do and so he says to them listen walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh and then he says it very clearly verse 17 Galatians 5 for the desires of the flesh there it is the passions the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the Spirit the Holy Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do praise God you want to do some good things And why is it you want to do them? Because the Spirit is in you. You've been born again, you see. But that inner struggle remains. I think all of us are aware of that. We need to, again, remind ourselves that our our greatest struggle is not with our neighbor, not with our brother, not with our sister, not with people outside the world. We have three primary enemies. The world, not the people of the world, but the thinking of the world, the devil himself and what? And our flesh. The first two, you can shut yourself off from the world. The devil's probably not personally after you every day. But lastly, your own flesh. That goes with you wherever you go. It's with you all the time. And it's always watching and listening and thinking about what you're thinking about and where you're going and ready to twist it and change it. These passions remind us then a few things. One of them, they remind us that this is an inward struggle first, right? Because we're talking about desires, desires. So in other words, we have to battle with our desires before we battle with our behaviors, The desires are the fountainhead of all our problems like this. Right conduct flows from right desires. And so I'm telling you what Peter's saying is there is a warfare going on. It's a battle. It's a battle for your affections, a battle for your inclinations, your desires, your passions. It's a battle that begins, therefore, in your thought life. It's epithumia remember that hyper hyper desires we've talked about them these are over the top desires that become expectations that then become demands and every one of us experienced them all the time and that's we were dominated by them before we came to Christ thank God now there's a struggle we're opposing them to some degree look what he said up in chapter 1 verse 14 to these to his readers Peter says as obedient children what's he saying you're the child of God now you're a child of God you've been a, you've been adopted now be obedient as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance there's that word again to those those hyper desires those a, high, hyper appetites that controlled you entirely before you came to the faith don't give in to them just as your father is holy now you need to be, be living a holy life, and again, I point out, he's saying that to who? To Christians, for goodness sake, because this is true, this is real, this is what we all experience, this happens to all of us, and you know, the, the Puritans, if you want to study this deeper, the Puritans wrote about this inward struggle more than almost any other era in, in, in church history, and among the Puritans, no one wrote more more profoundly and more than John Owen about overcoming sin and temptation. You could you could go and read some of John Owen if you want a more contemporary, very readable sort of uh, understanding. There's a, a small little book called The Enemy Within by Lungard, and that would be helpful to you as well. Uh, but anyways, uh, Owen described these desires this way. He said, we're referring to a strong, deeply rooted, habitual inclination and bent of will and effect. Wow. We're talking about a power struggle here. <laughs> this wasn't just some thought that popped into my head. This is something that is way down inside of me. A deeply rooted, he said, strong, habitual inclination. In other words, your first sort of reaction that has been built up over the years and a bent of your will. You're going to go that way that you now need to abstain from and walk by the Spirit from with in order to overcome what kind of bents are these what kind of inclinations well they're not only uh, they're not only hyper appetites like for sexual desires that get perverted there's much more than that they also include self-seeking self-centered desires of all sorts desires for for wealth desires for control desires for pleasure desires for comfort security desires born out of envy uh, and when these when these desires when these uh, the desires that are waging war against your soul when they win the day you make bad choices you make sinful choices you hurt people you say things you shouldn't have said they've won the day you see and when they when they win that day you will you will sin to obtain them you will sin to retain them because now these desires have become a controlling influence in your life and and to say that they wage war against, against your soul is to say, listen, this is a battle. This is a life and death struggle in the inner person. Don't make little of it. This is not some little arm wrestling match. This is a 24-7 military campaign against your soul. And it can't destine you now to, to condemnation, for there is no condemnation if you're a Christian. But it can ruin your testimony, destroy your relationships, and bring you to a place where you lose all your joy of being a Christian. Yes, the pilgrim life is a dangerous life, fraught with temptation, fraught with pits. I also emphasize it today because there is a, uh, there is a group within Christianity that doesn't see the Christian life in this way at all. It's, it's a, lo- a lot more passive. It's, our victory in Christ has been won to such extent that all you need to do now is let go and let God does waging war against your soul sound like let go and let God? <laughs> you, see, you see what I'm saying? Why does Paul say I, that you need to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? Why does Paul say, I buffet myself, I buffet my body? Because there really is a powerful struggle going on inside of each of us. And these desires wage war against you every day, every moment. And if you are not in Christ, I would say, if you're not a Christian, then there is no inner struggle, not like this. Why? Because there's, <laughs> it's not setting its desires against the Spirit. The Spirit is not in you, and your destiny is already secured at this moment, and that is that at this moment, you're heading towards condemnation. But, but if you were to embrace Jesus Christ and all his love and mercy... Believe that he died for your sin and repent of your sin. Acknowledge, humble yourself, receive him as your Savior. And Lord, he will flood your life with his love. Flood your life with that liberty of knowing you are, there's no condemnation. You are forgiven. And then you'll join the rest of us in this lifelong struggle for holiness and purity. And that's the only path to move forward. What's our response? We are to abstain, he says. The word means to distance ourselves, say no to these desires that seek to dominate us. How's that done? Well, it's not done in a moment, or all of us would be done, wouldn't we? It wouldn't be a lifelong struggle if there was some key I could give you today and say, here it is, one, two, three, set you free. (laughs) No, it doesn't work that way why would a man like Paul say near the end of his life, I'm the chief of sinners? The closer we get to the light, the more we see the, the bits of darkness that are still way down there. But as long as you go with the light of the gospel, you should go with peace, you see, into your own soul. You know, we spent, if, if you have not been through any of our discipleship here, we have our discipleship ministry, we focus a, a good amount of energy and attention towards this inner struggle. Helping you to go through this, work it out. One sermon here, one sermon there, that's not enough. The Spirit does powerful things in people's life, but you—if this is such a battle, you should dive deeper into it, Is what I'm saying, okay? And at the very least, I would say to you today, in this, power, in this struggle to, to, to abstain, we need to first of all recognize what's going on. In other words, we need to identify what the real temptation is in me. Remember, good, good behavior for uh, good conduct flows from good desires. So what, is, what are the desires that are driving me? You need to understand how temptation works and, 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 and get the right focus there. So for example, we turn to the book of James. It's James in two places, helps us, a brother of the Lord. In James chapter one, James says this, in verse 13, he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Can you imagine that? you got a struggle in your life. You're going to blame God? You're going to say, "He, he brought that in. He knows I'm weak, and he threw that at me. I'm being tempted by God. What's he say? He says, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Not towards sin. No way. He said, you know, I don't know what's happening in your life. He says, each one, each person is tempted when he, he or she is lured and enticed by his own epithumia, his own hyperdesire in there, you see, it's your own, it rises up. It's not yet sin, you see, because that's there, it's always going to be there to some extent. But then he says, but then the desire when it has conceived, you know, ah, it's won the day, it's won your affection. It's won your heart. It's one your mind. And when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Out it comes. Now you sin. You have sinned. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It could only bring forth death. If you're outside of Christ, it's, it's an eternal death. But if you're a Christian, it's a death to a relationship, death to hope, death to faith, death to, to this and death to that. Why? Because sin only brings death. That brings no good. The point is, what, where's it started? You want to enter this battle, you've got to understand you are in the battle, and the struggle is you. That's, that's the first thing you've got to do. You know, get the focus, get that video camera off your friend, off your spouse, off your neighbor, off your brother, off your sister, off the government, off anybody, and put it right here. Where's the struggle? It's in here. It's born of the flesh that remains in me, that part of me that's still fallen. And so we begin by identifying, being aware of what's going on in us. And James goes on in chapter 4. He gets more to the point. He says, what, for, chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fight, um, fights among you, O oh Christians? What causes it? Is it not this, that your passions, there they are again, your fleshly desires, your epithumias are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. He goes to the extreme to make his point. You know, he says, you, you are controlled by a certain passion, a certain desire. You don't have what it wants, peace, comfort, control, whatever, security. You don't have it. That desire's in charge. It's got the steering wheel, so you what? You sin. That's what's going on, you see. And so wh- how do we enter this struggle? Remember that your greatest enemy is right here. And it seeks to deflect. It always wants to put the blame elsewhere, right? It'll always shift it. It's him. If he had only not done, if she had not said this, if they hadn't planned this or It's here. I've met the enemy, and the enemy's me. Now, you cannot control the enemy in him, her, them, they, and you're not responsible for them. But before God, beloved, we are each accountable for waging this battle faithfully within ourselves. And praise God, it's not so that you would be loved, because you are. It's not so you'd be justified, because you are it's not that you'd be adopted because you are it's not to be forgiven it's not to be it's not so God looks at you more and says oh i love you more you already his precious possession it's for what it's to reflect him more bring praise to his name and and so our battle then is not with the world it's with our own self we start by identifying and we also Again, just to briefly touch today, you also not only need to admit and know and identify, well, what's the reasons you're doing what you're doing and ask God for grace to overcome those things, but you also don't need to feed those things. In Romans 13, Paul says, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I mean, it's there. Don't feed it, for goodness sake, <laughs> whatever, whatever the problem is with you, you know. When we, use it, when we illustrate it in our discipleship, we say the, the flesh is like a raging tire, t- tiger inside of you. Why do you keep throwing at meat? Huh? Why do you show up and throw a side of beef in front of it? <laughs> what do you think it's going to do? It's going to eat, eat you up. That's what it's going to do. So make no provision, whatever it is that you're beginning to see. Don't provide the fuel for it. Those are just two steps. There's so much more, you know. And be, 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 be assured God is with you in this struggle. Amen? You're not left alone, you know. Sanchez in his commentary reminds us that the battle really isn't with the people of the world. He says, our battle is not against the unbelieving people of the world. They are our mission field. He says, it is against our own natural sinful desires and no amount of insulation from the world out there will leave behind our desires in here. So the question, beloved, is are you aware? Are you awake? Are you fooling yourself? Do you know there's a struggle? Are you keeping the camera on everyone else and not going where you need to go, which is right in here? And begin to identify... These things are dead set to ruin you. They would destroy you. They'll get the better part of you. And they sneak up upon all of us. They justify themselves, right? Sin is that way. Clever. But listen, we sang it. The night is one, right? I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me, you see. You don't look to your flesh to overcome the flesh. (laughs) Oh, he'd love that. He'd say, yeah, let's work on it. (laughs) We look to Christ. He has given us his spirit. He's given us the new birth. He has given us his word to illumine the way. And he's given us what we've practiced today, the fellowship of the saints, so that we can bear one another's burdens. And we can say, I've been there, brothers. I've been there, sister. And we don't talk about it. We'll never know. As some of you are holding back things, you just think you're the only one that's ever struggled this. If you could only know. (laughs) You come to one of us, and we'll show you our own wounds and say, that's funny. I've wrestled with that my whole life. Yes, the night, the darkness has been won. Christ has overcome. I will overcome through him. And He's given to us the privilege of prayer that he is our great high priest who's been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. So find the appropriate strategies that help you. They'll be different. And do not lose heart. Do not lose hope. Um, Always remember this. The way back always is the same. Repentance and faith. It is always the same. Just the way you came the first time If you confess your sin, he is faithful. Faithful and just to forgive you of your sins in the sense that cleanses your conscience, right? And cleanse you. Your status never changed with him. But you need that sense of purification in your own mind and heart, you know, so that you'll be ready to jump back in the trenches with that that ugly self that's still there. And so there is what in the pilgrim life? There is a spiritual identity to embrace. There is a, an inner struggle, a battle to engage, to fight. And lastly, there's a distinctive lifestyle to display as pilgrims. Verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, that's part of it keep your conduct, that's not one of the, his favorite words of, again we've we looked at it way back in chapter 1, he uses it in 4, 5, 6 places it means your lifestyle, your overall way of life, keep your, old, your, your overall way of life, may your lifestyle be a sustained, uh, honorable life sustaining a godly life before the world, he says. That word honorable means beautiful, attractive, and it's seen through the good deeds that you practice in this world, even as they as they uh, uh, call you evildoers, because you don't agree with them. Don't join them in their in their sin and debauchery you know this early church would very soon be accused of all kinds of things being against the emperor because they wouldn't burn incest to the emperor they were accused of being atheists why because they didn't worship all the gods and eventually in the second century they were were accused of being cannibals because they went upstairs and hid themselves and ate somebody's body and drank somebody's blood what could they do? How could they oppose that? What could they do to, to vindicate themselves? They couldn't go on Facebook. They couldn't post something somewhere. They couldn't buy full, full page ads in the major newspapers. He says, here's what you do. You live good lives in front of them. Of course, what, what, what God defines as good is not always what the world defines as good. But that doesn't matter, you see, because what he is saying, if you live lives that God defines as good... There will be an effect upon some. God will use it. You're a light, you see. Peter doesn't have some sort of, you know, pie-in-the-sky view that if we only live nice enough, everyone will believe. He says, some are going to accuse you to be evildoers. They'll hate you. But he said, there'll be those, I think this is what he's getting at, who will give glory to God on the day of visitation. Because you held that light up. Peter almost quotes Jesus verbatim, you know. I think, I mean, in my mind, I imagine Peter was remembering what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount when he heard Jesus say this for the very first time. It must have been a shock. Peter, Peter heard Jesus say this, you are, Peter, you are the light of the world. Fisherman? <laughs> what did Peter say? Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. But he says, Peter, you're the light of the world in Christ. There's a light in you. And he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Well, he doesn't quote them verbatim, but you see those three words? See, good, glory. (laughs) See, good, glory. You know, there remains, even in fallen people, Because we are created in the image of God, we reflect God There remains, even in fallen people, an innate ability to recognize some good. Even though we define all kinds of other things as good that are not good. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the world's capacity to see the goodness of patience and mercy. And compassion, and humility, and kindness, and sacrifice, self-sacrifice especially, and generosity, right? There's, there's an ability to recognize that as good, even, by fallen people. In fact, sometimes films coming out of Hollywood, even, glory in these things. Imagine that. Now, they call all sorts of other things good. <laughs> and they glory in all sorts of other things. But they can never expa- escape the temptation to make a movie about self-sacrifice. Greater love has no one than to lay down his life for a friend. Huh? And they can't get away from that, you see. So Peter says, let them see that kind of thing in your life. Goodness, mercy, kindness, patience, compassion. Keep a sustained testimony where you live, he says. The purpose of it is so that they may see and glorify. See and glorify. He says glorify your God. Glorify God when? On the day of visitation. Now what's Peter mean by that? The day of visitation. Well it's hard to be absolutely sure you know. In one sense he could be for, for referring to the very end. The day of visitation is the day of judgment. The day when God comes and visits in absolute Uh, glory, to bring about his just judgments. But visitation is also use of God visiting people in this life. For example, when Jesus came to Jerusalem riding on the donkey, and he said, oh, Jerusalem, you know, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Here I was. Here I was, and you did not recognize it. I think what Peter means... And my best judgment, I think Peter is thinking of the final day of visitation, because he writes about a lot, a lot of that in his second letter, the day of visitation, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. And I think what he's saying is that as we live holy lives and we are light, not all, but there'll be some who will be affected by that and they'll be drawn to the source of that light in you and they will become believers and on the day of judgment, they will give glory to God. You may have never known that, that your life made a difference this whole life, but you may meet some of them there in the judgment. I think that's what Peter's getting at. He uses the same kind of argument below regarding wives of unbelieving husbands in chapter 3. He says that they, that they should be sub- subject to their own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, their unbelieving husbands. He says that they may be won without a word by the anastrophe, the conduct of their wives when they see, see your respectful and pure conduct, you see. I think that's what Peter's getting at. Some will give glory to God on that final day in part because the church was the light on the hill, the city on a hill. And your life was like that. So, beloved, to live the pilgrim life, in Peter's overall strategy, involves a spiritual identity to embrace. Are you seeing yourself as a sojourner? It involves an inner battle to be fought. Are you rightly engaged with the right enemy? Or your struggles with others. And it involves what? A distinctive lifestyle to display. A life, a conduct of good deeds before the world. To live a pilgrim life is to understand that the goal of this life is not to squeeze all the juice and pleasure of all the experiences and tastes and, thi- and, and goodness you could possibly get out of this life as if it is the last and only life there is. If this is your best life, I pity you. This life, to be honest, even for Christians, can be very, very difficult and painful and involve heartbreak, hurt, offense, letdowns. As some of you are experiencing in this room, even right now, it is a dangerous journey with pitfalls to hate, to return evil for evil. And these are all traps, waging war against your soul. But I go back as I started. Do not misunderstand me. This is not some sort of dark, foreboding, waiting for the other shoe to drop, pitiful looking people kind of life. It's not like that at all. Uh, And in fact, what God gives us, He gives us to enjoy. I think part of the problem is that we have so much to enjoy, we are so comfortable, we are given so much in this world, where we live, at least when we live, where we live, that we are distracted, we make this the end all. Paul says to Timothy, to tell the rich, that he freely gives us all things to enjoy yes God gives us things to enjoy but we are to share with those in need and we're to have thankful hearts but listen to freely enjoy what God's given you and to share what God's given you and to do so with a thankful heart that's one thing but that's very very different than living for these things being driven by these things loving these things being held captive by these things being driven to obtain more of these things you see that's a whole different Thing. That's to love the gifts and not the giver. And I think that's the great temptation here, you see. There are people living in who Christians living in other parts of the world who wouldn't dare think this is their best life now. Because it's awful. It's awful. The persecution's intense. The poverty is unbearable. The brokenness is, is heartbreaking. Very little health care. They're not tempted ever to think, this is my best life. But you and I, we are, you see. And the scriptures speak to us directly. I, I will belabor it a little longer because it's so important. The Apostle John says it very directly. He couldn't be any clearer. 1 John chapter 2, 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And when he says world, he doesn't mean don't love the people of the world. God so loved the world, the people he gave his only begotten Son. He's not talking about don't love the laws. And he's not talking about, don't love the birds and the trees in Yosemite Valley, the creation that God's made. He's saying, don't love the world's way of valuing things. Don't love the things, the material world, as the most ultimate thing. He says, for all that is in the world, he delineates them, the desires of the flesh, there it is. <laughs> Mm. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, got to have that. Got to experience it. FOMO, fear of missing out. And pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then very pastorally he says to them, and the world is passing away. (laughs) Why would you live for it? The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, I've seen people fall into this major trap of loving the things of the world, and it leads to many, many frustrations and regrets, especially as the end of their lives draw near and why is that? Because everything they've loved is passing away. <laughs> everything they've lived for, everything they've clung to is all passing away. You see. Do you love your health? That's going. Do you love your your appearance? <laughs> I want to say a thing. <laughs> do you love Do you love money? can't take it with you you'll leave it behind you see and so they're filled with regrets you know as the end of their life draws near i was reminded this week in my memory of a i couldn't find it i was looking for it somewhere in one of spurgeon's biographies there was this story that spurgeon told or someone wrote about that spurgeon told was that he had this really wealthy man uh, in his church very wealthy man and and he, he, he built himself this incredible custom home, you know. And, and he invited Spurgeon to go see it, and Spurgeon went to see it. Spurgeon was a, a, a preacher from another century, and so he went to, to go see this house. And admittedly, said, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's wonderful. You can appreciate the, the beautiful things that people make with the gifts God gives them. But he, then he said, I never forgot it. He says, these are the things that make dying hard. Yeah, for those who love them, yeah. That's right. So when you live the pilgrim life, by God's grace, you you will have some regrets, yes, but you won't have those types, those kinds of regrets, you see. When you come to the end of your life, you're not going to say, Oh, shucks, I never saw the Great Wall of China. I I never ate a handmade pizza in Napoli. I, I, I never I never went on a cruise around the world. You see, you'll never have those kinds of regrets. Why? Because what lies ahead for you only gets better. And so, it's a perspective God needs to give us and we need to help each other maintain. And uh I think C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia, he captured this in the last book, I was thinking about it, I went back to read part of it a couple days ago. And uh, The Narnia series was made, you know, popular through film. The very last book is called The Last Battle, and it, it concludes everything. Now, just let me say right now, spoiler alert. So if you're, if you're reading or planning to read it, <laughs> plug your ears. Uh, at the end of this, The Last Battle, which is the last book, right, at the very end of the whole series, Narnia... Narnia is ended as Aslan, who is the lion who represents Christ, um, intervenes and he rolls up the whole Narnian universe and then he takes those who acknowledge him by faith into a heavenly Narnia and a new earth. And the main characters are all there, Lucy, Peter, Edmund. But they don't quite understand yet what has happened in their experience experience they think they had a dream about a train wreck but they don't realize yet that on earth they had all actually simultaneously been killed in a train wreck so there they are in heavenly Narnia and Aslan Christ comes up to him and I'll I'll read the last two paragraphs Aslan turned to them and said you don't yet look so happy as I mean you to be Lucy said, well, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. By the way, that'll never happen, okay? (laughs) No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. And um, Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. But the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning (laughs) chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before." See? He's trying to capture in fiction what he wants you to understand about what lies ahead. Now, he believed this, I think, in, in, his, in his own life um, And he had a friend, a woman who was dying, who had professed faith in Christ. And so, fiction aside, this is what he wrote to her as she was struggling towards the end of her life. He said to her, Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. And there it is you're sojourners, you're aliens. There are better things ahead than anything you'll ever leave behind, especially for Christ. May God give us the grace to see it and believe it and live like it. Lord, come into our hearts with power and divine effects. Liberate us, Lord, from those passions that reside in each and every one of us. Give us grace and humility with one another. Help us, Lord, to place the camera on our own hearts You are faithful to forgive and cleanse. Help us to engage that battle and help us, dear Lord, to display our lives as a glorious light of your grace and mercy and help us, Lord, to live by faith, believing that what lies ahead utterly, utterly obliterates anything we left back here.